Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Global Citizen, a podcast by the journal Catholicos.World and FOGS, the Foundation on Global Governance and Sustainability. As a lot of you might know, Sri Lanka is going through one of its worst crises since its independence. Years of ineffective governance under the Rajapaksa family have led to the country defaulting on its external debt, sparking massive protests. Resvina de Alwis, whose name I hope I'm pronouncing correctly, joined me on the podcast to give us an inside view of the situation. Resvina is a writer, a storyteller, and an advocate, and she's worked with the UN in areas like gender equality, gender-based violence, and more. So we talked about the recent history of Sri Lanka, so how things got to the point they are now, what the political and economic factors were that led to the current situation, and also about potential resolutions to this crisis, so how things might play out from this point onwards. She also reminded me that it's in difficult situations like this that positive change can also start to gain momentum. She's reported that people from all of Sri Lanka's communities are asking for constitutional amendments, accountability, stronger and more democratic institutions, better governance, justice, and most importantly, for the current president, Gotabaya Rajapaksa, to resign. So for all of that, please stay tuned, and I hope you enjoy. Hello, Rizvina, welcome. Hello, thank you very much for having me here. Thank you for coming. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself to start off? like your background, your experience? So I was born here in Sri Lanka. I've lived most of my life here. My background, I would say professionally, it's on agenda and development because that's what I did my high studies when I did my master's in gender and development. And I started my career as a gender program specialist at the UNFPA. And that was in 2004. And then I went on to become a UNFPA's country representative to Cambodia and to DPR Korea. And I was also, before that, I was in Laos as the deputy. But actually, last year in September, I made this big decision and I returned to Sri Lanka. Now I work as an independent consultant, which also gives me some time to focus on my other passions, which is writing. So, so that's kind of interest areas. All right, perfect. So to give the listener some background information about what we're going to be talking about today, could you tell us a little bit about Sri Lanka? For example, what it's like living there in general, in terms of culture and social structures? So, yeah, I mean, Sri Lanka is a multicultural country. Uh, we've, had, we've had a very long history of kingdoms and monarchs, but we were colonized for quite a long time, actually. So the Portuguese colonized us for a while. Then the Dutch came on board. And then, of course, the British took over. So we have a very long colonial heritage, which is reflected in the multicultural nature of our country. So we have the Sinhalese, the majority population, which accounts for about 75%. And then we have the Sri Lankan Tamils, about 11%. And then the Muslims, about 9%. But, the, but we also have like, about 4% uh, Tamils of Indian origin, as well as, uh, you know, what we call Burgers of Eurasian descent. So it's kind of a very colorful multicultural society that I grew up in. And uh, of course, Buddhism is, it's a secular country. 
secular state, but constitutionally Buddhism, which is followed by the majority of the population is given a special place in the constitution. But apart from that, there is Hinduism, Christianity and Islam as the other three main religions. So I grew up in a very multicultural kind of environment. You know, my friends come from different uh, ethnicities and religions and backgrounds. Most of my uh, childhood and youth, especially my teenage and adult years, the war formed the backdrop, you know. So there was a change, I think, within society also. The multicultural nature of the country was in many ways being challenged because of the war, because the war was based on, um, as a civil conflict based on ethnic uh, grievances. So I would say that since we achieved independence in 1948, we've had a pretty checkered history. And I would say like we had uh, this 30-year-old long uh, civil conflict. And then we had two youth insurgencies during that time, one in 1971 and then one in 88, 89. The country has gone through a lot in that sense, uh, in terms of its uh, evolution from a colony to becoming a sovereign state. And um, times of war, you know, I mean, for me, uh, I think of how we kind of lived in, there was this fear always, you know, when you leave the whole house, you would not know whether you would return home because in uh, the war was not confined to the North and East. I mean, over the 30-year period, it kind of, you know, after the 1983 riots, when Tamil people were in, uh, all over the country were attacked by mobs. The war came to Colombo, to the south. So there was this fear we used to live with, I mean, you know, it, but it also became a way of life, seeing soldiers uh, carrying, you know, guns on their shoulders, manning checkpoints. It was like normal for us. You know, wherever you go, you go to a public mall or to a public office building or to a hotel, anywhere, uh, you were body checked, you know, this was long before 9-11 happened <laughs> in other countries. So this kind of fear and violence was pretty normal, it was normalized. And I think one of the downside of living like that is also that it erodes, you know, certain democratic uh, institutions or democratic values. Definitely. And that is pretty much obvious now also you know, even in a post-war context. So a lot of that, because during the 30-year war, we lived more, I mean, the emergency laws or what you call state of emergency, the Prevention of Terrorism Act was uh, introduced. So that was constantly in force, which that together with the, you know, combination of an all-powerful executive president is a dangerous combination. Yeah. So in that sense, you know, when national security becomes the top priority, there is a compromise in terms of human rights issues, media freedom, rule of law. So all that took a beating. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there was also a lot of nationalism kind of sentiments that were being whipped up for political gain. Right. So, uh, you know, back in 1948, in the British left, then we always say that the British divided the country, divide and rule kind of thing. I think the subsequent governments also did that. They kind of created this, uh, there was a lot of what I call othering of uh, the other minority ethnic groups. So there was the othering of Tamils, then it became the Muslims. 
So there was that happening a lot, you know, you would see that even, I mean, it became strong also after the, the war ended in 2009. So, yeah, I mean, there was this fear being created about the other and that was beneficial to the government. So in a way, the multicultural nature of the country, the one that I grew up with, was kind of being challenged a lot. But I think throughout these years, but at the same time, now I see with these changes happening, I see a resurgence of wanting to go back to those things that were different but united us. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for this. That was a very extensive analysis. <laughs> I didn't <laughs> yes. even have to ask please, the questions. <laughs> please, please, uh, please feel free to stop me from going. Oh, no, I, I would never stop that. That was great. <laughs> so <Okay>. thank you. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, over the last few years, Sri Lanka has been in the middle of a very, very intense and crippling economic crisis, right? Some yeah. sources suggest that Sri Lanka's foreign debt more than doubled over the last decade. And just in the last couple of years, the country's foreign debt has risen from 42% of its GDP to 119%. So in April 2022, Sri Lanka defaulted on its external debt of $51 billion. And since then, inflation is at record highs, along with the prices of many necessary goods. So that's kind of a snapshot of the situation as it is right now, if I'm not mistaken. Would you be able to provide some context, like some long-term causes or short-term causes for this uh, situation? Sure. You know, uh, but before I answer that question, I must say that I'm not an economist. So I, my uh, answer will be based on, you know, as a... Oh, yeah, we don't need citizen, a... Citizen living in this country. To get into numbers, yeah. just like a commentary yeah. on the economy, the way you see it. Sure, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we are going through a, one of the worst economic crises in our history ever. So it actually, it's not only an economic crisis, but it is a political crisis, a crisis of governance. And I think, uh, yeah, I mean, over the last, if you look at, I mean, one could argue that this is a kind of a build up from the 74 years, you know, not just something that happened at this point. Of course. So, yeah, in a way, it is the accumulation of structural issues and some bad policies that were made over the years. Uh, because since independence, we have not really addressed some of the major structural weaknesses of the economy. Because, uh, for instance, you know, the export sector, we haven't really diversified it far enough. So our export earnings have been stagnating for a long time. And then over the years, uh, we, we've also not been able to increase levels of foreign direct investment. Successive governments have not really been able to meet the targets that were set. And of course, then the declining uh, tax revenues, which uh, for <laughs> those are populist policies that politicians make. So all that uh, kind of contributed to this mismatch between uh, foreign exchange inflows and outflows. Mm -hmm. And we were constantly uh, having balance of payment crisis. So balance of payment crisis have always been there and we've always been reliant on external foreign debt for our development purposes. Mm -hmm. But this current crisis at this kind of magnitude, I don't think one can deny that it is the result of the more recent developments. At least personally, that's my opinion. 
I think there has been incredibly you know, gross mismanagement of the economy and really poorly conceived policies and rank corruption. Absolutely. That's why you find people on the streets. So that kind of, you know, all the structural uh, problems kind of snowballed and then came to this point. And if you look at the first thing that the government did when uh, this government came into power in 2019, they reduced the value-added tax from 15 to 8%. That's huge. And corporate tax was also reduced from 28 to 24. And then there were some other like pay-as-you-earn taxes, nation-building taxes, those were abolished. So the uh, revenue loss was quite substantial. And then, uh, you know, <laughs> COVID struck, you know. So in 2020, COVID came and already a bad situation. So with lockdowns, productivity was affected, tourism stopped coming. But again, you know, I wouldn't say it's because of COVID. There's much more to why we are at this point and why we've kind of almost at the brink of the precipice. Mm-hmm. So then in 2021, the president overnight almost uh, introduced a ban on chemical fertilizer, which was a huge issue because there was no kind of transitional plan or anything. Just banned it overnight. And, uh, and this is a country... Do we know why exactly? Well, several reasons. Of course, the official reason was we have to go organic. But... Honestly, it's, uh, you don't do that overnight. I mean, no country in the world has been able, has succeeded in doing that. But there are, I mean, it could be because there weren't enough foreign exchange to import chemical fertilizer. There are many theories, but I, I don't want to speculate as to why. But I, it was a bad move. And because the tea industry, the spices industry, the rubber industries, all export industries and rice, which... I mean, we are dependent on rice. Um, mm-hmm. That's our main staple. All were affected. So production dropped. And then uh, export income from these sectors dropped. We again are aggravating the already strained foreign exchange reserves. And then we also had to end up importing organic fertilizer because the president would not budge from removing the ban. So farmers were on the streets, but there was no... Uh, backtracking on that so there was a domino effect yeah a lot of things that contributed to this collapse right exactly the domino effect was shortages so no money no foreign exchange so we couldn't uh, there was no money for to import uh, fuel uh, lp gas which was cooking gas and also you know shortages in certain essential food items like milk powder uh, and tax cuts so no more government money so no more support Right. Absolutely. So the inflation just skyrocketed and government started printing money (laughs) to pay public sector salaries. And then... A scenario uh, that has played out many times so far, unfortunately. Saw a similar thing in Venezuela, you know. Exactly, exactly. So then, you know, then there was also 13-hour power cuts in addition to there were these long queues people were standing in line for to get fuel and gas and right. food items. So it, it's kind of a complicated, uh, I would say, a macroeconomic and political problem, not just a debt problem or a forex problem. It's a long-term problem, but exacerbated by really poor decisions made by the current government. Okay, so... 
To my knowledge, the economic crisis became publicly evident in late 2021 when the government announced the first economic emergency. And then by March 2022, Sri Lanka was at the brink of bankruptcy with foreign reserves falling below 2 billion US dollars. So how did the government react to this initial shock at that point? The government was in denial. I mean, they kept saying, no, there is nothing wrong. Mm-hmm. And that there was money. And even the opposition and then experts in the field of economics and whatnot went and personally apparently met with the president and told him the, the looming threats. But they didn't pay heed. So it was very late by the time they started uh, acknowledging and started addressing the issue. So by then, you know, the... There was no choice but to default on the foreign debt, which we hadn't done before in the last 74 odd years. So initially, that's what happened. And this is completely said no. And then people had to actually step out onto the street for them to even take those decisions. So just really unbelievable in a way why that happened. I don't know why they did that, because I suppose there was always this, you know, they, they kept saying, um, you know, when the tourists start coming, we will have, they were looking at it more like a liquidity problem. I think partly also because the right people were not in the right positions. Right. Uh, one of the things that this government did, I mean, it's kind of in our culture, in the political culture here, appointing, you know, friends and relations. This regime has been largely, it's almost like a family regime, you know, so mm-hmm. the president, the prime minister and the finance minister and several other state ministers are yeah. all Rajapaksa family. I saw while researching, it's the same yeah. last name in all positions. <laughs> exactly. So, so, so 75% of the national budget came under their control. Mm. So that was total. And, and the people they appointed at very important positions, for instance, whether it's a central governor's position or central bank governor's position or any of the other positions, were not really competent to understand mm-hmm. the issues behind these very complex right. problems. So, um, And it also hints to the system's own shortcomings, right? Because it is an elected government. But the way it was managed afterwards and how positions of power were appointed was what gave this otherwise functioning democracy these authoritarian flavors, right? So this nepotism. Absolutely. You you just hit the nail on the head because that's what's happening. I mean, so that's why this is not just an economic crisis. It's a political crisis with lots of governance issues because um, our institutions are very weak. Weakened also by the extraordinary power the executive president has. And when this Mm -hmm. president came into power, it was strengthened even further by introducing the 20th Amendment, which took away powers from the independent commissions. So there were all these independent commissions for public service, for judiciary, for election com- election commissions, all that where they would, you know, make appointments to these key positions in the public administrative service right. in an independent, transparent way. But those were all uh, compromised. They were undermined. So there were these, you know, army retired generals being brought into certain administrative positions. And and also, like you said, you know, it's a, we always, throughout the history of our um, post-independence era, we always elected our governments through elections. So one could 
say that oh, democracy thrived even during the height of war you know we had elections mm-hmm. but i really question you know <laughs> the quality of the democracy and that's where i think as citizens we have also failed and we have to take responsibility for the crisis and the problems that we are facing now because we elected these rulers these government i mean the politicians in you know, legislatures so we kind of i think um, don't use our vote you know we don't realize how valuable that is and uh, there is a culture here where kind of you know vote on loyal loyalty lines or party lines without yeah. really looking at the kind of the program development program or the manifesto that is being presented to the country so of course you know there is always a big gap between what we promised and what is delivered but there is the sense of people oh you know this is politics you know that's yeah. what they'll do as long as we have a job we are able to earn and live our lives we don't care what happens but right. see what happens now we <laughs> we all suffering as yeah. a result yeah. of fully uh, made decisions to elect people who are not suitable so the people are now facing these people that were elected and the consequences yeah. of their mismanagement so the first reaction now that things are really snowballing is um the protests so yeah. how did the people react can you can you tell us a little bit about the current protests in sri lanka what they look like what's happening yeah so i mean the protests started very organically mhm and of course the protests have been going on for a while i mean when the fertilizer issue came up and farmers were protesting but when the shortages in fuel gas food and medicines happened and there were this long you know kilometers long queues people were venting their frustration in the in the queues people you know have staying for 7 8 hours some even overnight but when the power cuts were introduced like from a few hours a day it was introduced to 12 hours staggered you know throughout the day and uh, people were really feeling it you know it's not just the usual you know the lower middle income uh, classes were standing in line or protesting now now all the middle class professionals the business people the young uh, youth you know whose lifestyles have been challenged by these uh, these disruptions were really feeling it so it started i think uh, you know people were stepping out you know when there was a power cut at 7:00 in the evening they would uh, take a candle and a, a slogan written hand written and step out in your neighborhood to protest okay. it was very silent protest you know peaceful silent protest and these kind of protest kind of spread to all the neighborhoods and then the through social media it was so interesting to see how it was uh, there was right. no individual leader or a mastermind behind it it's really organic and then they said let's so this is a um, new age of grassroots politics right with the absolutely. internet absolutely yeah and let's all meet in one place so people started meeting at you know independence square and things like that but then on the 31st night that's when it turned into something big on 31st of march um there was a group like that outside the president's private residence and it was somebody was uh, airing it uh, on facebook live and i think eventually it got on mainstream tv also and i was watching it you know and the crowds were swelling one people were just coming you know people cars going by tooting horns in support of the protest but as the night wore 
uh, it was sabotaged. You know, the peaceful protest turned violent. So the rumor is that it was pro-government people who set a bus ablaze, and then the protesters were attacked, and 54 of them were arrested. But an extraordinary thing happened that day. The um, lawyers, they mobilized themselves through social media, and they just turned up at the magistrate's court. And there were these 300, 400 lawyers in their black suits standing outside in support of the protesters. And the Bar Association issued a letter, the president of the Bar Association issued a letter saying that if peaceful protesters are arrested, they would appear free for them. So I think for the first time, people felt the law was on their side. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there was this some kind of an awakening, I think, that night. And then, of course, uh, there was this plan to meet at Golfers Green. Golfers Green is this huge uh, waterfront area, really beautiful, where people go to relax and enjoy uh, an evening out or something like that. And the president's secretary is also there. And there is a particular area that is allocated for protests. People were saying, let's go there. But before that happened, curfew was declared and emergency was declared, but people defied the curfew. And this has never happened. I mean, this is in a country where insurgencies have, have been suppressed very brutally. But people were really, they were at the end of the tether. They really didn't, you know, they didn't care. They were taking chances and they defied the curfew. And uh, so eventually they sent and parked themselves in Golface. And it's now they started calling Gota Gogama. Gota is the nickname of the president, Gota Rajapaksa. So Gota Gogama yeah. means Gota Go Village. So <laughs> they, yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's really, and um, so that's how the movement started. And it was not just confined to Golfist. They started doing this in near the president's, uh, the prime minister's uh, official residence. And then all over the country, you know, in like other big towns and cities also started establishing the Gota Gogamus. And then uh, diaspora living in other countries, they started supporting the protesters by having protesting all these main European cities in UK, in US, in Australia, New Zealand. So they were all doing that. Even in London, I think they had for two or three weeks a Gota Rogam. So it was really picking up. And I think it was successful because within days, the governor, central bank governor stepped down. The finance minister resigned. The government lost their two-third majority. And then on the 9th of May, that's the turning point, the prime minister, the president wanted the prime minister, although the protesters were actually telling the president also to go, the president wanted the prime minister, his brother, to step down. But on the 9th, on that day, the prime minister's protesters came to the city and there was the kind of unleashed violence on the peaceful protesters. So there was a backlash, there was a public backlash against the mobs, the government uh, supporting mobs, and it got out of control. So that night, there was a lot of violence in the sense that ministers' houses were set on fire, and even the prime minister, the president's parents' house and their some museum in their hometown were set ablaze. But the peaceful protesters were able to change that narrative 
back and bring it back to the peaceful uh, to a peaceful direction because they knew that this was uh, you know what the government would want it was they provoked the people to have violence so that because the very next day we saw you know battle tanks rolling on the the city right but of course you know it we uh, really, that didn't happen but prime minister had to resign yeah so for me i mean it's an amazing thing what was what is going on in the face and everywhere else in the country and it you know we also showed that this peaceful protest is not confined to all face you know it is in the people's minds and hearts you can't you know people are angry you can't go to one place and expect them to leave by just uh, uh, unleashing terror on them yeah. uh, but at the same time i think it also showed how fragile that peaceful protest movement was you know it was suddenly it flipped over to something violent but this time you know somehow we managed to bring it back to its original peaceful you know avatar because that's where the strength is because that's right. something the government does not know how to deal with you know peaceful movement violence that's where their comfort zone is you know exactly because that's how they have been dealing with but the peaceful movement is something very difficult for them so in that sense i think that alone is an important outcome of this protest movement and the fact that they're still there out there you know day and night braving the sun and the rain uh, when i went there it was pouring it was absolutely pouring cats and dogs were drenched but the spot and the atmosphere was so electric you know so there was this feeling of you know we have to do something we've had enough but at the same time there was also this uh, sense of coming together you know mm-hmm. so because we have been a community that has been divided this government came into power to divide the politics let's put it that way because they came on the heels of the easter attack and there was a lot of anti muslim sentiment at the time and there was this sense of wanting to save the country from extremism and uh, this president who was actually the defense secretary when the war was ended during the last phase of the war was seen as someone who could you know save the country because we love saviors in this country <laughs> so he came with a huge landslide victory you know with two third majority but because of all this disappointment uh, there was also this consciousness in people that Uh, you know these people who divided us we have to get together to send them out the government that came into power based on disuniting the people actually united all the communities now they are united to kick him out basically right. so so i think it's quite ironical in that sense <laughs> well yeah. you banned over something at the end right and especially yeah. if you have a common oppressor it's much easier to get all of these people together <laughs> i suppose so speaking of the protests again do you feel like the protesters have a common end goal for the situation is this an outburst out of frustration solely or is there an element of organization so are there demands is there an end goal what would satisfy the various protesting movements around the country yeah one of the criticisms or at least the detractors 
of this protest movement say, you know what, it's like a beach party, you know. You know, mm-hmm. you see, actually, when you go there, you see that young people, you know, are coming there with their guitars and their bongo drums and singing revolutionary songs with flags draped around their shoulders. So there is uh, something of that. But I don't see it as something that is uh, not serious or anything like that. I think it's, uh, it's, it is a new form of uh, uh, way of expressing your political agency. Because I grew up at a time where I always associated protests with violence, uh, ending in tear gas and can water cannons and live bullets and sometimes even uh, loss of lives. So there was always this fear. But with this protest... It's kind of like a family affair. People bring their children, they come and they vent their frustrations. But it is beneath all that, it's really very serious because it's not about, yeah, the tagline is go to go home, hashtag go to go home. But beneath that, the protesters, what we as citizens are asking is for system change. I mean, what does it actually mean? I mean, we are looking at not just sending the president out, not just, you know, asking the Rajapaksa family to leave. We are actually saying you have to abolish the executive presidency. You have to uh, bring constitutional amendments to allow that. There should be accountability, strong institutions, democratic institutions have to strengthen. There should be good governance. There should be justice. Corruption has to end. Return all our stolen money. You know, mm-hmm. These are some of the demands that are coming out of this protest movement. So it's not just, uh, yes, it started very emotionally with venting frustrations, but it also is a point where people are looking beyond for once. And there is a certain consciousness. And I think one of our Professor Jayadeva Yang, a political analyst, when he was addressing the protesters at some point when they were opening a media center, he said that it is a moment of transformation from voters to citizens. Mm-hmm. You can see that even at this Gota Gogama, the protest site, the culture is very different. You know, there are these makeshift tents that are housing a library, a media center, a movie theater. They're showing, I mean, there is thirst for knowledge. People who work there tell me that people are always asking about what constitution, about constitutional reforms, or they are doing sessions on democracy, about coexistence, even history. You know how history has been told and retold. That's amazing. Yeah. So all these are done by volunteers and there is theater, drama. So it's really a un, very unusual experience for me. Mm-hmm. And even things like that, they're so responsible, like there's no litter. You know, earlier if you had a May, you know, May Day rally, the next day it would be like a battlefield. But here they don't litter the place. It's being picked up. Plastic bottles are being repurposed and, you know, some made into these uh, sculptural, some fancy sculptural process expressions. Okay. So it's really, uh, uh, you know, it's something like, I mean, for me, I've never seen anything like that. And of course, the coming together of all the communities, because in April, when the protest movement was at its peak, there was Ramazan, there was the Easter Sunday, and then commemorating the Easter attacks, as well as Sinhala and Hindu New Year. All that was celebrated on Gota Gokam. And more recently, uh, in May, we also had uh, the commemoration of, you know, the war, the last stale, the tail end of the war when lots of civilians died. And that was a history which 
was not really acknowledged uh, by the South, you know. So there was always this sense, even when this Gotago protest was uh, taking place in the North and East, people were like, you know, saying, we faced all this for all these years. Nobody supported us kind of sentiment was there. But actually, Tamils are uh, protesting. Initially, there was a, a reservation. So in the North and East, also these protests have started spreading, but slower than in the South. But in Gotago Gama, they commemorated that uh, particular event, which was like for me an amazing thing. So there's a lot of self-reflection on the part of the people to really look at and this questioning of, you know, let us not allow uh, politicians to divide us anymore. We must embrace our differences and be united. And so there's a lot of that in the protest slogans. So for me, I think there is a lot of kind of uh, youthful fervor. Of course, it's not only youth. There are a lot of uh, other people of all ages are there. Mm-hmm. There is this serious business and they are very firm on those demands. So, so far they have not, now even the current government is uh, inviting them to discuss, to negotiate terms. But they are saying, you know, the problem is the current government, after the former prime minister resigned, a new prime minister has been appointed. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, he's someone who came from the national list. He was not elected. He was rejected by the voters. So, and he's just one person in one party member. So he, there's no legitimacy for him. So that's where the stalemate is. So he has not been able to form an interim all-party national government. So right. because you know, one cannot go for elections at this stage because uh, the country is not prepared for it. There are no resources mm-hmm. and it's too volatile to conduct elections. So the demand is president has to go and an interim all-party government has to be put in place. And then from there onwards, this executive presidency has to be abolished mm-hmm. and the political and economic crisis have to be sorted out by this interim government. And then when uh, when, uh, in a particular period of time, which was to be negotiated, you hold elections. So, but that uh, has not happened because the president is of course refusing to step down and he managed to get this new prime minister who is, uh, who has been a prime minister five times before but he's not part of the main opposition and uh, doesn't have the people's support. So they don't accept this particular current government right. uh, as an uh, all-party uh, interim government. So there is the stalemate at this point. Right. And that's the point of disagreement. I think that's that right. Yeah. It was an ex-prime minister, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. Yeah, that's he was tasked by this ruling family to create a unity government to find a way right. out of the crisis, yeah. but the opposition right. parties don't want to join. So basically, Gotabaya leaving is the catalyst here. So if this family that's is right. off power, then everything is set to evolve in that direction of recharting the future. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So. Right now, while we're having this conversation, the situation is still very volatile and very fragile. So that makes it very hard to tell what's going to happen. But still, I'd like to ask you, what do you think the near future of Sri Lanka's politics and economy might look like? And what do you think needs to be done 
to protect the people and the country and put it on a trajectory for a sustainable and equitable recovery? Well, currently, I think we are still in a very precarious situation. And politically also, like I said, uh, we haven't reached that stability. But, you know, we don't have a choice but to be <laughs> optimistic. Right. Everyone says, you know, that it's going to get worse before it can get any better. And that's very true. I think we have to brace ourselves for harder times. Because up to now, because of the instability of the government as well as the economic crisis, because they are interdependent, efforts made to, you know, reach out to IMF is also kind of still, you know, they uh, it's slowed down. because That's under negotiation, right? Exactly. So there is no sight of a package yet. And even if they, let's say we succeed in getting a, a IMF to intervene, it would mean uh, more austerity measures. So it's going to be tough times ahead. And especially it's going to affect vulnerable populations uh, much more. And Sri Lanka workforce, there is a huge informal sector, you know, daily wage, the daily wage earners. So they are the ones who are most affected. So social safety nets have to be in place. And at this point, you really don't know how that's going to be financed. I mean, are we going to print more money? So it's right. really a very, very tough situation. So until such, until those things happen, bridging finance also, we have not so far been able to get any other than through India, who has given us uh, credit lines. Even World Bank and ADB, they are kind of repurposing, they have said they are repurposing existing projects, but you cannot use those for things like buying fuel. So it is a very precarious situation. We are kind of like living on like from shipment to shipment. So there are queues still, you know, kilometers long queues for gas and other things. Yeah, so because of the interdependent nature of the political situation and the economic situation, we have reached like a like an impasse at the moment. And the new government, the government of Ranil Wickremesinghe, the prime minister, he has appointed there are ministers, the cabinet, and uh, there are two areas I think they are looking at. One is uh, tourism, and the other is migrant. Um, work, you know, mm-hmm. sending, because even if we have to restructure some of these state-owned institutions like Sri Lankan Airlines, for instance, which has been running at a loss for years. So mm-hmm. there is this whole notion of uh, having to sell that. So we don't know to what extent, you know, the family silver is going to be sold. So right. these are some of the things, some difficult decisions and whether they actually, when you're in a crisis and these decisions are being taken, they are taken in the due consideration to the pros and the cons are not given properly. So sometimes you might end up getting into <laughs> deeper trouble. So, right. so there are those huge risks as well. So I, I don't know whether I answered your question, but yes, uh, definitely, definitely. it's a very tough situation for us. And yeah, so I think if the political situation gets resolved a little bit, we might get more help. This is my personal view. But I mean, I don't know for sure whether that's main reason. Well, it's not expressed in so many words, but it could mm-hmm. be.
Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's a multitude of things. You know, it's yeah, it's yeah. the politics, it's the economy, it's access to aid, it's relationships with other countries, it's how things are going to play out in the inside. Yeah, it's looking turbulent, but I guess it's just a game of uh, resilience right now. Resilience and patience and aid. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Speaking of aid, what do you think the response of the international community has been so far? Well, from what has been reported in the media is what I can base my response on. There has been expressions of support to the country. Like, for instance, India has been very proactively supporting and they have even made a case on our behalf with IMF. Mm -hmm. But I, I also think that, for instance, I think recently I saw somewhere the IMF the head of IMF had mentioned that Sri Lanka, with so much potential, a country that shouldn't have been in this position, has been brought to this position because of bad policies and poor fiscal management. So right. I think there is an understanding of why we are in this situation. But at the same time, because of that, people, I think the international community is also waiting for something to change. You know, you don't want to... Right. It's like even the opposition, right? Their opposition is in a way pulled in different directions, I would say, because on the one hand, you know, they are uh, under pressure to leave politics aside and address the current situation, you know, to give relief to the people. But at the same time, if they go and hold hands or join hands with uh, this current regime who are being accused of corruption and mismanagement by the people, then they are also seen as those who are giving up on the people's hopes or kind of letting them down. So it's something similar going on there with the international community, I think, not making more stronger pledges, because I think there is a, probably waiting to see if there is a change politically, more political stability. Right, that makes sense. Before any aides. Okay. Well, Rizvina, thank you so, so much for this conversation. I feel like I came out knowing a million more things about Sri Lanka. <laughs> it was wonderful talking about all of these things in such depth, especially from someone that is inside and can offer a first-hand account of all of these things. So thank you so much. And closing off with a little question, do you have any ideas or recommendations on what people outside of Sri Lanka can do to help with the situation? Yeah, I mean, I think we could do more with some media coverage about the protest. But mm -hmm. more importantly, I think we could do with more, more nuanced and accurate coverage because what I have seen so far, I mean, it's the usual, you know, the violence and the... Yeah. Uh, Sensationalist. And, and negative stories, yeah. Because yeah. I, I read somewhere also that uh, uh, some renowned university in the US is going to use Sri Lanka economic crisis as a case study uh, of what not to do. So I think it would be nice if they could also study how protest movement uh, is doing, you know, how you how this whole new wave of uh, democracy uh, mm -hmm. and this uh, expression of political agency is happening in a, in a country at a very difficult time. So for me, in many ways, it's like, you know, the best of times and the worst of times happening side by side. So, right. um, yeah. They always come hand in hand. Yes. <laughs> 
And lastly, maybe I, I would say, you know, come visit Sri Lanka, give, you know, and give tourism and, and our economy a boost. It's mm-hmm. a peaceful country and very beautiful. All right. Well, again, thank you so, so much, Rezvina. Thank you very much for having me and for this opportunity to talk about what's happening here. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. Thank you, Jason. You too.